Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 19 in just a moment ago, and it's getting closer, isn't it? It's four days away. The other day I was walking through the offices, and I went into these guys' offices, Isaac and Elijah, and I asked them what they're going to get their wives for Christmas. And uh, Isaac's been married a few years now, and he just looked at us very boldly and said, I think I'm just going to wrap myself up and give myself to Maggie. And I looked, at, I looked at Elijah, the newlywed, and I said, what are you going to do? And he goes, that's a great idea. I don't think I'm going to give Macy much either. I know, I'm jealous of the hair. That's all it is. <laughs> hey, if you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark. I get to be one of the ministers, work with wonderful people like that. And we're glad you're with us this Christmas Sunday. Uh, we've been in a series called King Jesus Christmas, focusing on what Colossians chapter 1 tells us about Jesus himself. But when I said to you the other day, it's getting closer, it's not just December 25th that's getting closer. I hope you're encouraged in your heart to know that that day he returns is closer every day. Not just theoretically, but actually. That day where everything you've asked for in God will be given to you. That day where you'll receive things that are surprises. And that wonderful day where things you never thought about needing or wanting will be delivered to you. Perfect fit. A new set of eternal clothing that you'll wear forever as a part of God's plan. That day is closer than it's ever been. And that's what we look forward to. That's why we worship here today, not just because of a holiday, which is wonderful, but because of something bigger, that every day the arrival of our king gets closer. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, our gospel, the grace, the hope, the power available to us in Jesus, not in his teachings, not in his miracles, but in him, that he's the fulfillment of all that God ever wanted for us. And then last week we talked about Jesus, our king, that there's a universal capacity of of Jesus. As creator, he put all the cosmos together. It's all held together by his word and will. But there's also a personal lordship that each one of us must choose to accept. He is king of all things, but he will not make himself king over you if you won't allow him to. So we have Jesus our gospel, and Jesus our king, and today I want to talk about Jesus our salvation, our hope and our purpose. Let's read verses 19 through 23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard from that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul said this is what it's all about. Colossians 1 is one of the most powerful chapters from beginning to end about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And if you were with us here a year ago in January, we actually preached in January and February on this book, and we called it Enough. 
that he is everything we need. We need to look nowhere beyond that. And at Christmas, we, we normally, historically, you look at there are two uh, basic questions that are answered in the season of Advent, awaiting the coming of Christ. How did the Son of God come to earth? And why did the Son of God come to earth? This is what we celebrate in Christianity around Christmas. See, because one, the how he came is what we call incarnation. The why he came is what we call reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is one of those words that we don't really often use outside of legal proceedings. But to be reconciled are two people that have opposing opinions or one has wronged the other and we work to try to bring about a fair equitable solution to the issue, to reconcile them. You reconcile your bank account with the bank. They say you have X dollars, you spend two hours finding the three missing cents. You reconcile it, bringing it together with understanding. But I want to, if I can, pop the balloon of a false myth. There is a myth in the world today, when you watch television specials or you read about Christmas from what we'd call a non-Christian or secular worldview, that many of us think that the claim of Christmas is because God loves us and sent Jesus that we can work harder and bring about peace. That by trying harder and living in the love of God, that peace will just break out. How's that working? Because I say it isn't. Our families, there's a lack of peace. Our extended families, there's moments where there's no peace. In our, in our communities, in our states, in our nation, and throughout the world, where is this peace that we're working so hard to bring about? There's a difference between not fighting and peace. And so our myth of Christmas is, because God loves us, everything's just going to work out and we're all going to get along. That's not what Christmas teaches us. The gift of Jesus is that God had to come to earth to show us how to bring peace. And peace is not brought by just our actions. Peace is brought by what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come to just show us a way. Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves. You see, there's a problem. We've all rebelled against God. Creator God had the right to tell us the way things ought to be. And we chose to do it our way. And we rebelled against him, and we fought against him, and we rejected his love and his mercy and his right to teach us the right way. And our rebellion needs to be reconciled. There needs to be a crossing from one position to the other, of leaving our state of being wrong and in rebellion to going back and being reconciled to our Father. And what we did and the sin that that produced cannot be eliminated just because God loves us. So it's not just that God loved us and so we'll have peace. It's that God sent Jesus to do what needed to be done. In fact, Charles Wesley wrote the song that Elijah and Isaac just beautifully sang for us. And there's a line in that song that's the reason or the purpose of this message. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners, what? Reconciled, yeah. I love that. Peace on earth, reconciliation the need to be restored and to overcome my rebellion. Mercy mild, the incarnation. That God didn't send Jesus down on this white horse with this big sword and this big image to shock the world. He came in the form of a child who needed to be nurtured and cared for and that child grew to become our savior and he came as king and he'll come back as king. Mercy mild. So if you'll tolerate this first point, I think you'll see that the second and third point bring Christmas into perspective. The first is our need to be restored. 
Uh, th- this is an issue that's present throughout the Bible. Paul does it, handles it beautifully again in chapter 1, verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That through Jesus' physical body, through the incarnation, reconciliation could happen. Jesus didn't come to just preach a sermon. Jesus came to become the way. And the need is clear to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now Paul's terminology, we have to understand the context here. Paul's terminology to the people of Colossae would have triggered in them an understanding that he was referencing Old Testament sacrificial system. If, if I said to you in our culture today, even those of you that don't dig sports, if I said to you, hey, we're at the 50-yard line, you would know that I just used a sports reference that would indicate to you with a 100-yard field that we're halfway home, that we still got a long way to go to get to our intended goal. You would understand that imagery in our culture. Sports is spoken everywhere. You'd go, okay, I see what he's doing here. We can't miss that in our context. We can't miss it when Paul says, and he uses this atonement language, this sacrificial language, that his audience would have picked it up, so we need to pick it up. What does he mean, without blemish and free from accusation? In the center of the tabernacle or temple was the holy place. And God was very, very clear. You could not bring your filth and your rebellion into the presence of the holy God. Everybody understood that. You couldn't go into the center. You couldn't walk in and present yourself filthy. There were laws at this. And there were expectations of what it meant to be clean. And if you'll allow me, I think I need to say this to Americans, and mostly myself. What makes you clean is not how you feel about you. And what makes you clean is not what everybody else says about you. God will be the ultimate decider of what is clean and what is not. So you may say, well, I don't think I'm so bad. Irrelevant. Everybody thinks I'm a wonderful guy. Irrelevant. What's relevant is whether or not walking into the presence of holiness, you can present yourself before the most holy, perfect God. And there were throughout all of this, being unholy and blemished was a deal breaker. You could not enter that place. In fact, when you read the book of Leviticus, it's a struggle to read it. But when you read it to see not what you can and can't do, but when you read it to understand what it's teaching us about God, you can see some things. For instance, you couldn't go in there dirty. There was a big bowl called a laver. They actually referred to it as the big sea. I wonder if that wasn't a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea into the promised land. Interesting issue. But they'd have to wash their hands and wash their face. They had to make sure that they were not dirty. Um, They also had to wear certain clothes and certain kinds of clothes, which is fascinating to me because God would not allow polyester into his presence, which means God has taste. In fact, God says, no leisure suits in my worship ever. God is brilliant. And those of us that lived through the 70s and our moms made us wear plastic clothes to church, may God forgive their souls. That you had to be physically healthy You could not come in with an infection or a cough or an illness. And we think, man, God was really strict. But here's a takeaway for me. There's a bunch of reasons why God had these things in place. But here's the one I want to present today for us to ponder. You could not go into worship having not prepared yourself to worship. In other words, 
The law teaches that you can't decide on Tuesday you're going to worship God on Wednesday and have prepared yourself to worship him on Wednesday. It took every day of your life to make choices to say, I am going to work on being clean before God rather than remaining filthy. Does that make sense? And I'm not picking on anyone in particular because, in fact, I've not had this conversation with people here, but I've heard the murmurings all my entire life that people say they just want to come in to worship on Sunday morning and have about 15 or 20 minutes to get their mind and their heart right. You're too late. You should be doing that every moment of your waking existence. If you decide Saturday night you're going to get ready for worship on Sunday, then we have all misunderstood worship because the law of cleanliness was a statement of preparation of our hearts every day to worship. So I don't spend Monday through Saturday getting ready to come in here on Sunday. I spend Monday through Saturday worshiping my God so from the fullness of that, I can splash all over you and you can splash all over me. And so the law teaches us that God has a high expectation of us. Now let me give you one more parallel and then you'll see maybe where I'm going in points two and three today first parallel is this. Why do we have human law? Why do we have laws in our country? Why do we have laws in the world? We have laws for this reason. So we can learn how to live civilly. So we can learn to respect others and protect others. We have laws in our town that says you, have, you can't drive by a school at 85 miles an hour. That you should drive by a school at 35 or 25. And every now and then you'll see a car with these red and blue things on top that will remind you, if you don't, we'll take care of you. Why do we have speed limits in front of schools? Because we want to protect our children. We want to protect the moms and dads who are dropping their kids off and picking them up and, and the teachers. And we, we, we want to say your freedom is going to be reduced in this moment so other people can live freely. And our laws are in place so that when you inflict your freedom on another person and reduce theirs, we're going to stop you. We stop you multiple ways. Sometimes we fine you. Sometimes we take $125 from you. And we say, now you'll remember, drive to protect others, not just your right to get wherever you want as quick as you want. And sometimes we have to do more than that. We incarcerate people. We take them out of society and we put them in a spot where they cannot be in a civil world because they won't behave as civilians. They won't honor others and respect others and they harm others. And so we remove them from those situations. And we can debate whether or not we do that well. That's not my point this morning. My, my point is that we understand that we know when someone violates the consequences of civility, we will restrict their freedom because they can't handle their freedom. Now, how does that compare to God's law, the divine law? It's very interesting. The purpose of God's law is so that you understand who he is and who you are in comparison. So that you can live in relationship with him. And we have those laws because we're not good at that. So God established the laws of cleanliness and he established the laws of how to treat one another and he established laws of, hey, I want you to take one day out every week and and just trust that I will provide for you so you never forget where your provisions come from, called Sabbath. And God put these laws in play so we could learn how to interact with him because sin had damaged us and we'd lost our compass and he was showing us how to get home. And what happens with the consequences of refusing to obey God's law? When we break God's law and we don't honor him as king and creator, then what happens? We'll be punished for our choices. And the truth of the matter is, punishment cannot be solved by saying, I'm sorry. The punishment of violating our God's perfect will cannot be evaporated by us having remorse. 
And for many of us, we think that I told God I'm sorry. He knows I'm sorry. Can we move on? The answer is no, because we must understand God has never wavered in discussing with us the reality of what our sin did to us and him. And it can't be put away with an I'm sorry. Something bigger had to take place. You see, the love of God should have been all I ever needed to honor him. But it wasn't. And I threw the love of God away and I rejected him. And that can't be put away with the tacit I'm sorry. It must come through a purification. The big bowl, the cleansing, the sacrifice. In fact, our rebellion against God cannot be handled tactically. It must be handled completely. And the Bible teaches it clearer. Now I know, we, we don't want a God who says your debt must be paid off. None of us do. We all truly want a God who just says, oh, you knuckleheads, cut it out. Promise. And we go, promise. He goes, ah, get out of here. That's the God we want. But that's not who our God is. He can't look at our filth. He can't look at what we've done to our lives and simply go, well, you're good as you are. Kind of sticky, but but okay. And he looks at you and he says, no, I've created you perfectly and beautifully. And in your rebellion, you've brought all this sickness and illness and blemishes on yourself. And that's not okay. We have to work on that. But notice God doesn't say, you have to work on it. Our God says, we have to work on it. So we get Christmas. When the work came to take care of us. So that's the theology. Now let me talk to you about the imagery. What is the way of restoration? Because we all need it. How is he going to do this through Christmas? Verse 20, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. Here's the way of reconciliation. Through his blood. There's no other way. And I'll explain to you why. But I am very grateful that I don't live in the day of the law. Anybody else? I mean, how would you like to know that every Lord's Day that you came into worship, you would have to bring an animal and we would spend hours. So it would not be 70-minute services. We would spend a day together killing things. And there would be blood all over. The smell, the sounds, and the blood. Am I making you uncomfortable? Because I want to. Merry Christmas. I want you to understand that it's a bloody Christmas if you really understand it. And we live in the sight of grace, where we think saying I'm sorry, and that takes care of all of it in Jesus, is partially true. But if we could take ourselves back to the day of law, even on the day of the Passover, on the day Jesus was betrayed and murdered, there, there would not have been drops of blood or a splattering of blood. There would have been gallons and gallons of blood. The streets would have run, according to Josephus, red with the blood of animal sacrifice, the sounds the, the noise the animals made, the smells, all that was related to that. And we can't, on this side of grace, we, we can't forget that to appease the God, it requires life. It requires blood. And on this side of grace, we have this real sterile, antiseptic Christianity, and we miss out the fact that blood has to pour forever. That's what he gave us at Christmas. In Leviticus chapter 16, describing the day of atonement, when all believers in God were freed from their sin for the year, it said, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meetings so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. 
He is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Let me give you the imagery of this. On the day of atonement, you would bring two goats. Let's use goats here. Now these goats had to be the best in your herd. You couldn't get the old nasty one, the old mangy one, the one that was a little bit weird and crazy with a bad leg. You couldn't bring that to God and going, hey, I can afford this. To, to bring a sacrifice, it had to be a sacrifice. You would bring the two of your best male goats. They had to be the best. You wanted to keep them because if you bred them, you would have an incredible herd. It cost you something to worship God who you have alienated through sin. And so they would bring the two goats and the high priest would come out and he would pray, pray the prayer of atonement and he would put his hands on the heads of each of the goats. And one of the goats was really lucky because after the prayer had been prayed and the hands had been laid on him, that goat would be taken outside of the city and it would be released. And the unlucky goat who had the other hand laid on his head, he would be the guilt offering and he would be taken and instantly slaughtered. And there would be gallons of blood and sounds and smells and horror. Death is not, or sin is not something we dismiss with I'm sorry. Sin kills us and it kills others. And in that moment, in that beautiful imagery of the high priest setting one free to escape the punishment, the sacrifice no longer required of it is sent out into a new place. And the guilty, well, let's just say there's a lucky one and an unlucky one. And on the day that we received our Savior, God chose to put his hand on my head, his hand on the head of Jesus, and say these words, Mark, go, free, no longer to be sacrificed. Jesus, my son, I will take your blood for his. And that's the Old Testament image, that when Paul said unblemished and without accusation, he took them all to that moment when the high priest would place his hands and they understood that they had been freed and that Jesus had been taken and his blood would pay for all of our sins and that's the image of this. But I want to take you to the New Testament. I want you to think about the miracles of Jesus. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament touching God's a bad idea? Anybody ever notice that when you read through it? God's on the mountain giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai with Moses. They're there over 40 days. What did God say to the people that weren't invited to the mountain? If you step on the mountain, you're toast. And so they put a boundary up to make sure no one in a foolish state. God even said, if a goat or a cat walks on that mountain, it's going to die. And that's just. You don't touch the mountain where God is. Because it's holy and we're what? Not. So you have this beautiful image. You even have that scene. As a junior high kid, this messed me up. My parents taught me all the time, be helpful. You help people. You open the doors for people who, are, who are, got their hands full or if they're elderly, you show respect and you let them go through the door. I don't know how many times I'd be walking in a restaurant ahead of my mom. My dad would cuff my big head and say, wait for her. And I'd open the door and she'd waddle in and I'd stand. I don't know why, but dad told me, be helpful. And then I read the story of the ark coming home, the ark of the covenant. And they had it on a cart. And it started to wobble. And a guy named Uzzah, who had to be in seventh grade, I think, reached up to be helpful, to steady the ark. What happened to Uzzah? Dropped dead instantly. Why? Because that was holy and Uzzah wasn't. Then I come into the New Testament. 
And Jesus is walking by and a crowd is pushing and shoving to get near him. And a woman who's been bleeding for 14 years is on her knees and she reaches. And according to the best I can understand Luke's description, and by the way, Luke's a doctor. And Luke said that the doctors had tried everything they could to heal her and failed. He's revealing the torture she went through. And she just reaches without saying a word and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And of course, Peter's like, are you kidding? Everybody's touching you. This is ridiculous. We got to get you out of here. And Jesus stopped and he's like, Peter, no, who touched me? I just felt power leave me. By faith, she reached out and touched him, which is so different from my Old Testament because when you touch God in the Old Testament, you die. When you touch Jesus in the New Testament, you live. She touched him. And the Holy One became unholy. And the unholy one became clean. Or as one preacher said, she stopped bleeding and he started to. It's powerful. See, we in America don't hear Paul say unblemished and without accusation. His audience would have heard him say, wow, Jesus took the Old Testament in all of its beauty and he made it perfect. You see, some people said, I'm clean, I'm good. The the Pharisees, they had thought because they said, I'm sorry, and washed their hands, that they were good. And Jesus said, you're far from the kingdom of heaven. And people cried out to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner, I'm filthy. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice what he's telling us? Someone's got to lay their hand on our head and free us or we're going to die. And God did that through Jesus. And that's the gospel. The incarnation and the reconciliation simply told. Because when the unholy touches the holy, something dies. To our, to our blessing, when our unholiness touches the holiness of Jesus, he dies and we live. That's why Paul said, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Remember, it doesn't matter what I think of me. It doesn't matter what you think of me. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of me. And he understands clean, clean to the soul. So what is the result of this? I've given you the theology and I've painted the picture, both Old Testament and New Testament, how God is going to do this, but what's the result? To present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's what Jesus came for. It's a beautiful gift, a peaceful gift, a wonderful gift. But understand that he came knowing that God would place the wrong hand on him. If, if God had been perfectly just, he would have squeezed my head, brought me great terror and pain, and said, in your rebellion you will suffer. But he didn't. He put that claw on Jesus' head and he led him to the cross to die. And he placed the hand of gentle, loving fathering on mine. And he said, now go and live for me. Live for the one who paid your price so that I could be holy and without blemish. He came to us to allow us to come to him. That's what Christmas really is. That's why John wrote in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not asking us to say we're sorry. He's asking us to say we need him. We were wrong. We rebelled. We've rejected that God deserves more from us than he receives. And in that confession, the gift of Jesus is what we'll receive. And what does he do for the world? 
Why did he, he didn't send them just to die for one or two individuals? Paul says in verse 19 and 20, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Everything we needed is in Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. By making peace. That's where we began. Christmas is not about because God loves us, we work harder. Christmas is about because God loved us, Jesus came to make the way of peace. And the only way of peace would come through his blood. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. He was a priest, and he was in the Holy of Holies performing the ritual that he would get to do once in his lifetime. And an angel appears and says, you and your wife are going to have a son. And he doubted, and in his doubt, he was made to be quiet. Think about the punishment to telling a preacher he can't talk. And when she became pregnant, and they were to have the child, they said, what will you name the child? And God had told him through the angel, you'll name him John. And all the family members were like, we ought to name him this, and this is a family name, and this is, you ought to name him after you, Zechariah. And, and Zechariah just wrote somewhere for people to see John. And in that moment, his tongue was loosened, and he spoke these words. Listen carefully. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and listen to this, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Jesus did not come to set worlds in order. He did not come to make governments play nice. Jesus came to bring peace between me and and his father. And the only way that could be done was through the blood when Jesus said, take mine and give mine to Mark. And the same thing he offered every one of us. You see, that Charlie Brown is the meaning of Christmas. Because Linus gets asked every year, does anybody really know what Christmas is all about? And then I love Linus. Because Linus walks to the center stage and he says, lights and the spotlight hits him and he reads these words and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby watch keeping watch over their flocks at night and an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terrified and the angel said to them do not be afraid i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the town of david a savior has been born to you he is christ the lord and this will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Peace. He is the gospel. He is the king. And he is our salvation. And the angels cried out, Glory to God who orchestrated this very strange but powerful, meaningful, and eternal solution to our problem. Our rebellion was met by the one who never rebelled. And his glory is received on those who don't deserve it. And the angel said, God did it. God did everything he said he would do, and he did it through Jesus. And peace on earth to all men, to women, to children, to families on whom his favor rests. That day is coming where every present we've ever needed will be found in Jesus. Every dream, every wish, every hope to those on whom the favor of God rests. I think it's safe to say 
God has favored us, hasn't he? He has given us the most beautiful thing we never could have imagined anybody would give us. He placed the hand of mercy on our heads and he took the one who deserved it to our punishment. And so if you don't, if you've never received the hand of God's mercy, please talk to us. Because the greatest gift we can show you is the gift that the king of all creation wants to give you. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.